Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Joshua Kuznick. Joshua is a MLBPA certified agent and an occasional contributor to Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Joshua Kuznick. Joshua, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yes, thank you for having me. And don't forget, I'm also at the other podcast, AntGM.com, where I have my Joshua Kuznick experience with Ryan Sullivan. There you go. The Joshua Kuznick experience is an excellent show that I can't recommend enough to people. But I want to know, I ask everyone this right at the top, tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Autographs and baseball cards. For real. Like, when I was eight years old, uh, my dad and I went to my grandmother's house for a visit, and we was messing around in her closet. And we found all of my dad's cards from the 50s and 60s that she was gracious enough to not throw out. And we were going through it. And I remember seeing a 61 Tops Carl Yastrzemski card, one of the matte painting cards, and just enamored with it. And then my dad's best friend at the time, um, who's still actually a family friend, um, was really into the memorabilia and the hobby. And we went over to his house. I started collecting cards. And uh, I, uh, I started going to uh, minor league games with my dad as a teenager. I got to be that boy for the Orioles a couple times in spring training um, when I was like 11 and when I was 13 or 14. And um, when I was 15, I started going to minor league games with my dad heavily. So in the Florida State League that year, I saw uh, like Vlad Guerrero, Scott Rowland, Nomar, um, and those guys. Uh, I think Paul Canerco is in Vero. And uh, that's what really got me heavily involved in it. And then one uh at one game in 2002, I was watching uh, Miguel Cabrera, Dontrell Willis, Josh Willingham uh, in, in Jupiter at Roger Dean Stadium. And a guy from the White Sox was there, Joe Butler, um, who still works for the White Sox. And I was 19, and he, uh, he gave me his card. And that was kind of my first in in professional baseball. And, um, and then after that, I, I asked him one day, uh, I was helping him with some draft stuff before Google and social media was invented uh, by hand. And I asked him, I said, uh, if I find the next Babe Ruth, how much money do I get? And he goes, you make your salary once you're hired. And I said, well, how do you get the money? He's like, you got to be an agent. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do that. And uh, the very first client I ever signed, uh, he told me that uh, if I bought him a glove, I could be his agent. And that's how I got started. And that dude got to the big leagues and I got certified. And that was it. So is that what it takes to get certified? You just need to have a client that reaches the majors? Uh yeah, <laughs> I mean it's That's a little it. more com- it's a little more complicated than that with the certification process. But I mean, if you don't have a guy on the forty man, you cannot get certified. What is the path to to acquiring new talent to represent? There's no one way. Um, some are referrals from other players, uh, other clients. We get other clients sometimes, uh, and can cost you other clients sometimes. But uh, um, for me, my whole situation and setup is dependent on um on scouting and personal relationships so uh if i couldn't individually uh evaluate my own players i would not be an agent uh my background in scouting helped me immeasurably and if i didn't know what i was looking at without my telephone um i wouldn't be able to do this now there are some agents that are attorneys and i am not um that take great pride in not knowing anything about baseball and just being legal eagles um there's no right or wrong way. I, I couldn't do this job if I didn't know baseball, but if I didn't if I didn't know baseball and I wasn't an attorney, then I wouldn't be an agent. 
I'm curious about how just the internet in general has changed what you do and it's just like a general perspective of being an agent because you mentioned you were doing some scouting work or helping a scout out with some draft stuff really before Google and all these lists and prospect lists were online. Right now I could go online and look for the top 100 high school prospects and I'd find a list in about 30 seconds. I'm curious about how much like that finding that gem, finding that guy or scouting that guy that you may not think anybody else knows about, but it seems like those top guys everyone knows about at this point. Yeah, but those are the the late guys are the guys that I I find. Um, I've had great success discovering them. I mean, it's been difficult being a smaller sized agency with just me um, for years. Um, it, it's sometimes difficult to maintain those relationships when they get up there. But like I found over twenty five, thirty big leaguers in my career, and out of all of them, it was <laughs> it's some irony. Uh, one, I've only had two first round picks. One of them was Jeremy Jeffress, and I had him after the draft, after the fact, and um, I got him, I think, his first year in pro golf. So I only negotiated one first-round pick myself, but um, every other client I've ever had that made it to the big leagues was in the fifth round or later, um, all the way into the 40s, and um, that's predominantly where I built my career. And again, the only first-rounder that I ever had that made it, um, I'm sorry, I've worked for three first-rounders. Um, one I took on years later uh, when he was an indie ball. Um, Josh Vitters, I was helping, but um, but Jeremy was the only first rounder that that I worked for that made it and and got a contract. So um, my whole career has been built on on guys in the fifth round or later. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the off season that we. Just <laughs> a lot of players got contracts that were seemingly less than market value. And a lot of guys, a lot of productive players are still unsigned. What are your thoughts on what went down this season, this offseason? I I found this offseason to be very challenging and strange. Um, I don't have an explanation for it. It seems like there's something going on that the numbers would indicate that something is going on. But I I, I couldn't pinpoint what it was. It was just a very strange um, offseason for everybody. I, I do not know what to make of it. I, I think, I think analytics and all this overflow of, of data is, is, can be problematic. I, I spoke to a player yesterday and he, he gave me some great insight that I, I never would have gotten anywhere else, but, uh, he was joking with me and he said, do you know what, um, like for players, do you know what analytics are good for? And for like when you're dealing with the team, and I said, what? And he goes, well, in the clubhouse, we all say it's good for telling us how terrible we are. <laughs> so um, if you look at certain things like spin rate, um, Clayton Kershaw's, I guess, is like fairly average, which what do you do with that? What do you do with all this overflow of information, these new stats and these new things that we've learned about? And you look at a thing like that where you have a very average spin rate on Clayton Kershaw, who I would not trade that curveball for anybody so um again getting back to the offseason stuff the main question um it was very it's not an offseason in which i discussed a lot about finances with teams and players and it was mostly fits and and it was a lot of waiting um in free agency on, on what i was dealing with on the smaller side with minor league free agency and and one-year deals and, and whatnot for my guys trying to get guys back in and I ultimately had to send three players to uh, to Bradenton, and the players' association was was great with setting that up. But um, what a bizarre offseason! 
I have no idea what to expect for next offseason. Well, you mentioned the use of analytics, and I want to sort of tie that into arbitration and what an arbitration hearing is like, because arbitration seems to be the only place where traditional counting numbers are still used. And no front office executive at this point is using pitcher wins or RBI or saves to evaluate a player. But they do bring up those numbers in arbitration hearings. And I'm curious as to how that balance works between you have front office executives who are saying numbers they don't really believe in to shoot down a player where they have more access to analytics than you do, but you still have a lot that's in the public sphere. Tell me about an arbitration hearing and sometimes that clash between uh, analytics and, uh, I guess, traditional counting numbers and where they where they hit each other there. You can't use most analytics in an arbitration hearing on either side, so it's negligible, and we're dealing with a system that is evolving. I, I don't have that fixed, but I, I've been fortunate in 15 years in baseball. I haven't had to go to a hearing. I've avoided everything. Um, I mean, I've been up until the process. I've worked with Jay Reisinger, uh, the pre-arb deals, all that stuff, but prepping for a hearing, but I, I dealing with the team, it, it's very surreal to a level uh, right now at this point in history, I, I think, because we're dealing with these very complicated ideas right now in baseball and trying to figure out how they fit into the game presently. And it's certainly trying to to a degree, it, it, it's some people are trying to reframe past players with all these discoveries of analytics, but it can be a bit disingenuous because at some point you're, you're asking people to not believe what they're seeing where, you know, that player is really good, but he's not really as good as you think because of this, this, and this. It's like, but he's really good. Nope, you're wrong. And, and that can get, I can get a little over overboard. And, and it reminds me of Moneyball a, a lot where everyone's like, well, this is the way things are now. And then that went away. Uh, by and large. So maybe this is a phase. I mean, yes, a lot of it will be integrated forever, but I've had to learn tons of stuff about analytics that I never even heard of two years ago and really constantly trying to play catch up with it. And the teams, because they have the access to all that data and it's proprietary to their teams and it's not collectively shared, whatever those are that are not like collectively bargained for, you can't use it in an arbitration hearing. So by and large, analytics are not part of the hearing process. So you are dealing with baseball card stats in an arbitration hearing. So it it actually makes a little bit more sense that way um, on a basic intellect level, but it's not where the game is right now. I could say that, but it, it, antiquated, maybe? That's a good word. <laughs> I want to ask you about the, the CBA in general. I think that some issues within the CBA are sort of what's Part of the problem with the offseason and maybe future offseasons as well. And to me, the biggest issue that the players didn't address is the amount of service time that the club has control over at the beginning of their career. Other sports, it's four years. In baseball, it's seven. They made no movement to even do anything about that. And that was the thing I was most surprised about with the last round of negotiations. What do you think about the service time control that teams get right off the bat? What do I think of that? I think it sucks. But Addressing the issue, I wasn't part of the negotiations in the last CBA. I just kind of got the updates as they were telling us, and uh, everyone at the PA did what they thought was in everyone's best interest, and they put a priority on a lot of things that, that players, I guess, had asked for over the years, and they went and did that, and maybe there were some things that were unexpected that should have been expected. Maybe there weren't. Who knows? We're adjusting all of it, and it, it's it's a lot. It is a lot to 
to, to, to catch up to. And I'm not saying it's, it's not saying it's not their job to do that, but, um, or to not do that, but they traditionally have been the strongest union in every sport. We've always been on top of everything. And I think ultimately that's where the union will be headed, but we were up against, um, I mean, I, 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 from the outside looking in and as much of an outsider as I can even say, I am, um, it, it certainly looked like they just, they got to a point where like, we can't, this, this would not be in anyone's best interest to have a labor stop. But let's just kick the can. And, uh, I mean, we, we've got time to work on it. still. I, I'm still optimistic that, uh, these, these issues can all be hashed out and there's all kinds of CBA issues in every sport that, people will have issues with on one side or the other, but ultimately baseball is generating so much money. I, I am very hopeful that both sides realize this. And ultimately if we alienate fans, then we're all screwed. So I, I, I'm, you know, I'm part of that generation. I'm 35 that remembers 94 messing up a lot of things for people fan wise. And um, I also remember Cal Ripken and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa bringing baseball back and uh, given the plethora of entertainment opportunities in 2018 for people uh, from things I never thought I'd see as an adult, like, I don't know, drones and virtual reality. Um, I don't know what would ever happen if there was a labor stoppage again. And I, in any of the major sports, much less mine, the one I work in. So I think devastating for everyone would be an understatement. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan too. And, I, I don't know. I, I don't even, I can't even imagine. I mean, mentally I, I've been preparing in case because I am an agent and I have to, but um, it is not something I ever anticipated. I would have to willingly like, Oh wow, this is where we're headed. Like I just haven't anticipated. not the right word. It's just not something I've had to deal with in my career. I've been in that sweet spot where we've had labor peace the entirety of my career. And um, you know, I, I, I hope that continues, but, you know, we're at a tricky point and we'll see what happens. It's, you know, at this point I'm, I'm with everyone else. You got to hope for the best and trust the leadership to do what's best for everybody. Cause that's what unions are for. Just because you mentioned McGuire and Sosa, that made me wonder if you've ever had a client that's been popped for a PED. I have. How does that process work? Are you informed when they're testing? Are you informed ahead of time when they're testing? When no. they actually test positive for something, yes. what kind of call do you get? Do you, did they tell you what they tested positive for? You get a letter. You get a letter and they tell you. It sucks. It's a really horrible day. I've had it a few times. And uh, you guys have continued to work for other guys I've gotten rid of. As long as they just tell me, like, I messed up. I did this. I, I was about to get released and I cheated. Or I took a supplement. I'm an idiot. Whatever it is. I'm like, I don't care. Just tell me. And uh, the guy tells me. And there's some level of contrition, then I'm good and that'll help. But if it's one of those things, like I have no idea what happened. It's like, all right, I'm out of here. So it, you, the, the legal tell the player. And then I, I haven't had it happen in a while, but essentially legal lets the team and the player know and player or team or both tell me and then deal with it accordingly. Um, I have a guy serving suspension right now and, I mean, Jeremy had his non-PED issues, 150 games, which were horrible. And I also used to work for uh, Adrian Nieto, um, and he was at the Biogenesis thing, and that was really tough. But when he got popped for 50 games before Biogenesis became a thing, I told him to be as open and transparent as possible about what he had done, and he did an interview in the Washington Post, I think, about 
yeah, I, I cheated and I messed up and it was stupid, but I didn't feel like I had a choice. And he was very open about it. And a couple of years later, he got rule five by the White Sox. And I'd spoken to someone with the team. And like, had he not done that interview, we would not have taken him. So there is a value if you mess up to just owning up to it. I've always believed that. I mean, the, the, the one that I've been closest to that I've seen someone own up to and make mistakes and been forgiven and, and tried to live up to being a, the man of his word is, is Jeremy. Of course, he's had so many issues over the years and he's finally seemingly overcome a lot of them. I mean, it's a battle every day for him, but he's a guy that he he's human and he's had problems and he's owned up to it every single time and been very transparent with it. And I think that's part of the process that's gotten him here. That's, that's helped him. And that's why it, it, the brewers have been such a good fit for him mentally. Um, it, it, it's really just for him. It's, it's a good support structure. And I mean, I, I couldn't care less where guys play as long as they're happy. Well, tell me about your relationship with Jeremy. You've known him for a long time. You've been through ups and downs together. You've had bad experiences with players and you've had great experience with players, but his seems to transcend that. You seem to be very close friends. Tell me about your relationship in general. Yeah. Jeremy's family. I, I first saw him when he was 15, He's 31 now. So I've, I, when I when I met him, he was only alive for 15 years, and since the time I've known him, I've known him for 16 years. So that that's weird when I do that math. But I saw him opening day, and we we've been through everything, good and bad. When when I was coming up, and I was working for Kenley Jansen and Lorenzo Kane and 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 Brantley and and uh, JJ, and I had all these guys, and I was coming up, and uh, my dad had a personal issue that really derailed my career uh, that I had nothing to do with me. And uh, it cost me ultimately Lorenzo and, and Kenley. And I had to rebuild everything after them. The one guy who stayed absolutely hardcore through everything, bad, good, and different was always Jeremy, like more than anybody without him, my career is over. So I, I owe him for as much as people have said to me, like, Oh man, if it wasn't for you, he wouldn't be playing baseball or, Oh, you saved his career. And that might be true, but he saved mine too. Very much so. And, um, without him, I would have absolutely nothing right now. My career would be over. So he and I, beyond that, I mean, we're inseparably close. Like, uh, we were sitting around opening day, like after he won, like in his hotel room, playing Fortnite, ordering room service and listening to, the music he recorded in his rap studio that he put in his new house. And uh, I will say when I went to Arizona for spring training, one of the best moments of my career is when he picked me up. Um, I, I, I was waiting for him in the, the offices of the brewers at, at Maryvale and uh, Matt Arnold and David Stearns came out and I'd said hello to them. I hadn't seen them since Jeremy signed his contract and JJ comes out and, and I hadn't seen him since the contract. He picks me up in front of them. <laughs> and hugged me and uh, like the dirty dancing is hilarious. And uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm glad the front office got to see this, the high level of professionalism I have. And, uh, and, and Jeremy, uh, you know, we're in the car ride home after that. And they take me to the house that he just bought and they just were in the car and he's like, bro, we did it. And it's like, wow, that was the first time someone said we did it to me. That is awesome. So, I mean, he and I, that'd be inseparably close. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm closer with him than any player I've ever had. You mentioned Kane and Jansen and getting fired from a player. Tell me what that's like to be on the other end of that, especially you were going through personal things at the time. But tell me what it's like when a when a player fires an agent. <laughs> Fucking terrible. Um, yeah, it sounds pretty awful. Yeah, I, I mean, sometimes they'll handle it like, hey, I'm doing this, sorry. Or sometimes it's, 
you know, I know this is the wrong thing to do. So here's a text message. Thanks for the eight years. It's like, Oh, sh- wow. That is thanks. No problem. We're good. See you later. And, and it could be over just like that guys that you did everything for, um, for, for whatever reason you get, you get hired to get fired. I mean, it's, I mean, even guys that you're with to the end, when they retire, they, if they need to blame someone for their career being over, cause they're throwing 83 miles an hour at some point, sometimes they cut your age, they cut the agent off because it's the, your fault for not finding that last job, or they don't want to be reminded that they didn't make it or something like that. So you lose a lot of relationships just on that. But I mean, with, with Kane more than any in my whole career, that was horrible. We were so close and he was the guy that I found before anybody else at Tallahassee community college. And, um, I mean, he would say this without my help back early on. I'm not sure. I mean, he would probably admit it. I don't know if he would have stuck it out. I mean, he talent wise, I had nothing to do with that, but we blow and I pushed through some stuff early on in his career, like not issues, but like he, he questioned his ability often. And then he finally got that level of confidence. He's unbelievable. But, um, I saw low on opening day and after eight years we made up. So low and I are good now. <laughs> well, what was that moment like? You must've seen him there when you were visiting Jeremy and tell me about that moment where you reconnected. It was weird. Um, it was very strange. I haven't talked about this yet. It just happened. Um, I hadn't seen him in a long time. And he came up to me and gave me a giant hug and we were joking about stuff. And I told him, uh, told him I hope he plays till, till he's, uh, 40 because he owes me some fucking money and then we were fine <laughs> and that's it now you're friends again i don't care about the money it is what it is and somebody was like yeah but that was like four million dollars like whatever I, it, you can't sweat i mean it sounds terrible but you really can't sweat that stuff if you if you don't if you just don't have that in you to just say screw it um you don't get to do this job it's, I hear people with their dreams and trying to become an agent. And they're like, well, you know, I'll find this young guy and then I'll stick with him and then it'll be this great thing and I'll make all this money off of him and then we'll make it together and that's what it'll be. It's like, yeah, that never happens, ever. Because if you're nothing and you're starting out and you find someone great, someone like me is going to take him. <laughs> and then when someone like me comes around, then other people bigger than me try to take, take, take them from me. So the way it goes. And what you're describing happens in the entertainment industry all the time, too, where an agent finds a young actor or a young writer and they sign them and they help them out early on. And then they hit it. They hit something happens where whatever they get a featured role on a sitcom, they're a reoccurring character, they sell a script and all of a sudden they have to fire that agent or they feel they do to go with the bigger agency. And I'm curious what you see the advantages are of being a smaller agency compared to going up against some of the uh, huge companies that employ hundreds of people? There's a cost benefit to both Um, the bigger companies. It's just for the most part, from what I've seen, it is a very machine like and orderly and, and proper. And uh, none of these things are bad. I mean, it's different. I mean, everything's for different for everybody. I'm, I'm for a certain kind of player personality wise. And, um, Ultimately, we all do the same job. We all follow the same CBA and the same rules. If they hire someone certified and competent who they can tolerate, who they like, then that should be it. But sometimes they believe there is more than there is. Interesting insight is if a player had an agent that they were unhappy with and then I got hired, maybe twice in my whole career has the guy switched to me and then fired me. But the guys that have only had me from the beginning and didn't know anybody else, those are the guys that you get fired by because they don't know anything else. What's the 
procedure there. What if you have negotiated a contract for someone and then they fire you? You still get the percentage on the old contract, but anything new is what the new agent gets? Is that yes. how that works? Yes. And is there a fixed percentage that agents get, no matter how big or small, that you can take? It's complicated. Uh, essentially, yeah. I mean, there's a there's like an industry standard, but um, there's not. Re- I mean, there, there's not supposed to be a sliding scale. I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I usually just charge a flat rate for everybody. And then, obviously, you get paid on um, marketing and what endorsements you bring in, but only the endorsement deals that you physically like get paid on. So if somebody gets five grand worth of swag where there's no money, um, I don't get paid. I want to ask you about someone who was a client of yours, Steve Clevenger. And Clevenger went on Twitter a few years ago, and there, I mean, there's just no other way to say this. It was He just unleashed some extremely bigoted and racist remarks and tweets I'm curious how you had to deal with that as an agent, having a client on that side of things. I was at Carlos Asuaje's major league debut when that happened. That's unfortunate. And uh, yeah, yeah, that was horrible. Um, Yeah, that was a strange phone call. I had no context when I got that phone call and I I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And I, uh, I then got a call from this, from Jeff Kingston and, uh, then I realized what had happened and uh, I checked Twitter and I was mortified and I've known Steve since 2005 and that would have been, I mean, near the bottom of the list of guys that would have said something racist. Like if I had a betting pool, um, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm a, I'm an independent, but I'm a, I'm a left leaning Jewish dude. So, I mean, I worked with Clevenger for over a decade. I never saw any of that with him. And I think, I think Steve, I don't think Steve realized that was there. And um, I think the election brought out a lot of bad things, a lot of people that they didn't realize were there. And I know Steve has tried very hard to make amends for what he had done privately and publicly. He's tried to make amends, but I'm not sure he will ever be able to do that given what had happened. I was hopeful for him and his his daughter uh, and his wife, but I don't know. I don't. I don't believe it'll be something he can ever fully uh, atone for. Even though I know he will try uh, forever. But as an agent, something like that, I I I stopped being his agent at a certain point. I mean, it, for a while, I I tried to hang in there because I've known him for so long. But um, it's just I couldn't do it anymore. Um, I, I, we we still talk. We're still friends. Um, I, I care about him very much as a person. I mean, you can care about a person who did a terrible thing. Um, you, you can do that, but um, I, I make no excuses and I don't condone any of the actions. I disagree with all of it. And I think it's gross and reprehensible. And it, that was not a case of speaking your mind. That was horribly racist. And that was, that's what it was. We all saw it. And uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything like, well, this is what he meant. I, it's right there. I don't care what he meant. So, um, he hurt a lot of people, and I tried. I made the decision early on to try to show him the better way, and I, I know it, 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 it meant a lot to him, and, and I know he, he's, he's still trying. Um, but, again, I don't know if it will ever be – I don't know if there's anything he can do that will ever make that lessened, but I know he will attempt to. But I didn't do any kind of, like – I didn't do any kind of, like, damage control. I didn't stand up in front of it. I – I didn't leave him hanging either. I facilitated the media with him, but I didn't step in front of it. I wasn't going to. And I also didn't, I didn't want to pile on to him either because of how long I'd known his family. But 
you know, now that he and I are talking again and we're friends, like at the time, certainly I, I didn't, there's, I didn't do a damn thing to, to defend that. Any relationship obviously has its up and downs throughout the course of the, the relationship. I'm curious when you're having a hard time with a client, what are some of the things that can cause tension? Obviously outside of the Clevenger situation was, which was uh, abnormal, but what are some of the things that could generally cause tension between a player and an agent? A bad deal, um, marketing-wise, a bad deal with the team, bad deal for another player, and your clients ask you what the hell you did. Um, mostly, really, though, other agents calling your players. If the player is the kind of guy that will talk to other agents, that will always be problematic. I, it's really, I mean, that's like the main bane of my existence as a smaller agency would be other agents calling my players. They're obviously calling, trying to poach. Do you do that? Not really. Most of my clients are... I don't cold call. I, I never have. I always thought it was stupid. I don't even care if it's effective. I just never did it. I never have. I, it's always referrals. It's always a player giving me a phone number to call one of his teammates. I, I would say it's either me walking up to a guy that I saw play, like uh, like like a Swahe, or a referral from a teammate. I mean, I've got like five guys I need to call from the spring from clients that tried to refer guys to me, so... I got to follow up all that the first month of the season, but no, I actually do not just randomly call guys. Now, if I'm set up with someone who like, Hey, call this guy and he has an agent, then I will speak to him if he's unhappy. But if he's thrilled with the guy, the conversation for me at least ends. I don't spend any time talking to players and telling them why they need to fire their guy. You could probably ask any player that's run into me. If they've told me they're happy with their agent, I know the guy I'm like, he's a good dude. Just, you don't need me. Just do me a favor and don't listen to anybody like me. And I remember I had a pretty high end prospect I ran into and I knew his agent and, I didn't realize he had one. I said, hey, do you have an agent? He told me it's so-and-so. I'm like, he's a good dude. Um, you know, you don't need my card. And he goes, well, you never know what could happen in the future. I'm like, after that comment, I'm definitely not giving you my card. I know what a good job your guy's doing. So you got to use some discretion, too, if you feel like it's not going to be a personality fit. I've been stubborn. Sometimes I've let the ability blind my judgment where there's just no personality fit, but the guy's really good. And it's like, I know I'm going to get fired, but I do it anyway. So... That's part of my job I need to work on where I have limited myself because of how outspoken I think I am. And I need to be aware of that when I'm scouting. So, but I would say that like you'd brought up before social media and, and baseball America and Google and, and, and fan graphs, especially that's all stuff that you would always have to do by hand and and look up i mean the stuff i was doing by hand then was i was literally looking in baseball america writing out every single signing bonus for the first 10 rounds and then averaging them out by like position like what each catcher got in the top 10 rounds on average by round like positionally that, that's what i did by hand i can google that right now and um so those jobs are obsolete um so it's it, it's a lot. It's just there, there's a lot that goes into the, the business side of things with, with baseball, maybe more so than or maybe sports in general. I think there's just with the overload of, of data, I don't think all of us know what to do with it yet. We're all trying to figure out the most effective way to use it, teams included. And we are now going through that, that phase where having the number one pick seemingly is, is the goal more so than winning the World Series, which, I mean, as a fan, I, that, that is not something that is interesting for me to watch. Do you think being a baseball agent has transferable skills to other forms of people that may need an agent, whether it be comedians, writers, actors, whatever? Yeah, yeah, I do actually. Um, and I, 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 sure you know this. I 
I was a comic for a while and um, I, I love it. I love going on stage. I love doing stand up. I think those skills are actually a lot more transferable than my agent skills being a comedian. But uh, if I'm funny, if I'm not funny, then I'm screwed. But uh, I think the agent skills, they, they would translate to other facets. I mean, I did work for John Butchergrass. I mean, I, John and I are friends. I've, I've done work for John for 15 years. So, I mean, I got John a baseball card deal. I mean, obviously, in that situation, working for someone in sports that isn't on the field, I just called the baseball card people. I'm like, Hey, do you want this guy? And then it transferred that way. So, um, in that sense, that would do, you could do that. And as a comedian agent, I probably could do that myself just because of what I've done. But, um, with that said, um, I think each sport is specific to their own CBA. So, and, and players association. So when people are trying to get in the industry and they want to work in multiple sports, I laugh at them. And, uh, I, I always try to point out that the highest grossing agents in each sport tend to work in one sport, unless they're like a management group, which then it doesn't matter. But if you're one person and you have a client list that involves multiple leagues, it's like, Oh wow, you're certified in every sport. You're an expert on every CBA. It's, it's just, you spread yourself too thin and it's stupid. You really need to pick one. It's objectively stupid too. It's just very stupid. You can't be great at all those things. You should just get great at one thing instead of being good or average at a bunch or even bad at it. So it's just, they're my job 365 days a year. I'm on call 24 hours a day and I'm not saving lives and it's stressful. And it's, there's a lot of hotel living and traveling and being alone on the road and in, in cities that suck. And yeah, I'm in San Diego right now and it's awesome, but I've also been in, you know, I've been the one Jewish guy in Salt Lake city, Utah. That was interesting. So, right. All the minor league cities that you, I'm sure you have to go to as well. Those are, uh, some of those are in very, very red state areas. Yeah. And I remember when I went to FSU for the first time, it was like the first time some people had seen a Jewish guy, which I'm from South Florida where everyone's Jewish. So that culture shock, like take that college culture shock. And then, you know, it's dulled over the years, but like me going all over the country, um, let's just say the last, the, the election this past you know, the past election we had politically did not surprise me. <laughs> I've, I've been around the whole country. I don't know. I'm curious how more people did not realize any of that, but another podcast for another day. I didn't want to wade into politics, but that's these people. It feels like even in baseball, I'll actually draw a parallel here. Even in baseball, it just feels like there's two different worlds that there's two groups of people getting two sets of different information and then everyone's angry. And in baseball, it feels like that's happening too. <laughs> and it's weird. I do you want to ask you two more questions before we wrap it up? I want to ask you about, I want to ask you about the winter meetings. I want to ask you about how the winter meetings have changed since you first started going. But I also want to ask you about that first experience too, your first time at winter meetings and what that was like. Oh, wow. Um, it was in Orlando in like 2003 or four. And, uh, I had never seen anything like it in my life. And I've been to that hotel a billion times now. And, uh, I, I, that's my, I mean, I, we're not going to go back to Orlando now. I think they took it out of the rotation. Uh, sadly, it was my favorite one. And, uh, just, it was very compact. And for me in Florida, it's just the one I could drive to. So it was, it was great. But the first one I went to was very overwhelming and I had no idea what I was doing. I was just running around and my dad was with me and I, um, I was a nerd growing up, like hardcore. And when I had my Baseball America subscription at 14 in 1996, um, 
I would read the articles, obviously, and I'd take up everything because I want to know all the minor league players that I was going to get autographs of, my like, team best cards. Like, they would sell at KB's, you know, with Jay Payton and Scott Rowland and Roy Halladay. Like, that that was the era I grew up in, like I said. So, um, and all those articles, we would talk about scouts. So, the people that I looked up to that were signing the guys that were getting autographs of were, like, Logan White and Dijon Watson and Mike Arbuckle and Mike Rizzo. And those, those were the guys that I looked up to. So, my first winter meeting, Logan White is standing there on a on a, a column, like a marble column, and I'm like 20 feet away from him. And I point him out to my dad, and I'm terrified. And my dad just goes up to him, starts talking to him, and introduces me. I spoke to Logan for an hour, and I've been friends with Logan ever since, uh, like 14 years later. And uh, I, that's the part of it that's cool. Uh, I have a little benchmark where I can measure my first winter meetings to now. And um, I, when I first went, it was very analog world. And, and I think pre Facebook. So yeah, I just, I don't want to even say this because it's the best time of the year. And it's certainly my favorite event in all of baseball as an agent is to go to the winter meetings, but it it doesn't feel like it serves the same purpose anymore from when I started where you announce the big signings or, you know, you go on the free agency tour there or trades are happening and everything's done by text message now. So you, you never lose touch with anyone. There's really, other than to just see everyone in person um, in one room every year, which there is a a tremendous value to that, where every media outlet, all 30 teams, and every equipment vendor in the whole industry that anyone who's anyone is in one spot for three days. There's a huge value to that because deals still get done in person, um, or the groundwork to deals get done. The marketing side of it is tremendous because deals get started and completed at those things, uh, endorsement-wise. but now, as far as what Joe Fan would be looking for, as far as winter meetings action, like crazy trades, three in the morning in the lobby, two GMs get drunk, you know, trader Jack McKeon going crazy, duping a GM, those, those days are over. I mean, honest to God, this past year at the winter meetings, I maybe saw one or two GMs in the lobby the entire time I was there, which that's never happened before. Every single year, you would see everybody. And the only time I would even see some GMs right now would be like the rule five draft, but even there at the rule five draft, they don't even show up anymore. And they send the kids younger than I am to go do the rule five draft to groom them because it's the rule five draft. So my goal for every year is to hit all 30 teams. And I schedule it out way better than when I started now where I'm not scrambling, but um, yeah, I mean, the biggest change would be the analog world to the digital world where you don't actually if you know what you're doing and you're a qualified agent, you have your contacts and you can literally pick up the phone to call anyone. You don't actually need that, but it does make it simpler to just see everybody once a year in that spot. So I guess it's necessary to a degree and maybe a little bit out of tradition too, but as far as what it used to be, it's, 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 it's different. And I, I don't even want to say for the better. It's just, it's just evolved. Lastly, I'm curious if you would do anything differently. You've been in this business a long time now, over 10 years. What would you change? What would you do differently in hindsight? I would dress better. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You think I that would, matters? I, there's no question. I, I've held on to my 90s look forever, and it's, it's probably been a little bit problematic for me. And uh, I've raged against the machine for so long. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's still a little jarring when clients see me cleaned up. Um, and I, I need to respect that more. I wish I did that better. And I, I, 
coming for me, this will be very rich, but I wish I shut the fuck up. Um, when I was younger and I didn't know what I was talking about, looking back on it, it's cringe inducing, but it certainly helped the maturation process for me as an agent dealing with the media. And that has been invaluable to my career. Um, so I don't know if I would do that differently. It's cringeworthy, but honest to God, I'm not trying to be glib here. Dressing better for me would have been a lot different for me. And I'm so far in right now with my personality and who I am. And it's still a challenge for me um, to do that. And there's the part of me that doesn't even think that matters at all because it doesn't. But then there's the other part where you work for someone and you present yourself away because you are representing them and it's not about you. And, um, I need to remember that more. And, uh, I, there's a disconnect sometimes with me where people will talk to me and they're like, God, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And then they'll see me like, that's the guy who knows what he's talking about. And that's the part of the job that I created a problem for myself with. And as an adult at 35, I mean, I started a, I started when I was 19. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I mean, my twenties were awesome. I mean, I was crazy. I was the same age as my clients. I was partying with them. It was, it was just, it was, it was an unforgettable experience. doesn't mean it was good. I didn't make any money off of it. I did a horrible job in retrospect. I mean, scouting, I was awesome at it. I thought it was great, but oh boy, I, I this baseball doesn't need any of us and they let us stick around for as long as they need us. And then they get rid of us, all of us, every single one of us, we don't play forever. Um, some of us get to stick around longer than others. Players get to play till they're 40. If they're lucky, I get to work in baseball till I'm dead if I'm lucky. So, uh, but eventually like, uh, I do always say this good, bad, or indifferent getting fired, not getting fired. The one thing I always tell people is, you know, the way I get through something like losing $9 million off of commissions is, you either it, it it breaks you or you you keep doing it. But what I would say is everything becomes a memory, and then you die, and uh, and that's that's what it is. You've been listening to Joshua Kuznick. Give him a follow on Twitter at Joshua Kuznick. Joshua, thanks so much for the honest interview and for taking the time today. Absolutely, thank you very much. <laughs>